Good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this day. Uh, just a few announcements before we begin our service. Uh, the first being that we have various information about women's activities in the church in the bulletin that if uh, that we'd like you to look over if you're women and involved in our women's ministries. Uh, particularly, I'll call to your attention that all women are invited to the 2024 workshop created for connection. The event will be located on the campus of RTS in Jackson on Saturday, March 2nd. There's more information about that in the bulletin. Um, also, if your picture is not in our new pictorial, pictorial directory, which looks great, uh, by the way, thankful to have that as a resource for our church. If you didn't get your picture taken or don't, uh, please contact the office uh, so that we can take care of that. There's a note in your bulletin about that as well. That's all that I have by way of announcements. Let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts to worship the living God.
Good morning. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4. God is the one who brings us into worship, to worship him. This is God's word. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Would you pray with me? God, at the works of your hands, we truly do sing for joy this morning. Our hearts might be troubled. Our hearts might be worried and anxious. But God, you have given us joy that cannot be taken away. Joy amidst our suffering. Joy amidst our sorrow. And for that reason, we give you all the praise. You have brought us here to worship you by the power of your spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that in the middle of of our busy and anxious lives, that you would speak clearly to us, that you would lead us in this time of worship, that you would center our minds and our hearts on you, on the good news that we're about to hear. We thank you, Lord, for this time of worship, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our first hymn will be hymn 164. I invite you to sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing hymn 164. Let's worship together. If you would take your bulletin, you'll find in it the confession of faith this morning, which is from the Apostles' Creed. I'll ask you, believer, by faith, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 7 is our Old Testament reading this morning, and it points to our message this morning, which Pastor Heath will be preaching. Listen to God's word from Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We move into our time of prayer and I'll be leading us in that time of prayer, and I specifically will be focusing on John chapter 11, the story of Martha, of Lazarus, of Jesus' interaction, his compassion, his grace, and his mercy. So if you would, please join me in this time of prayer, and then we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. Dear Father, John chapter 11 shows us our honest reaction when our loved ones pass away suddenly. When Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, we can often relate. Death makes us ask often, God, why did this happen? Why didn't you help? What are you waiting for? Why Does death still affect us here? Our souls cry out against death, especially of the death of those taken from us unexpectedly. And that is the right reaction. How long, O Lord, must we we weep over the death of our loved ones? Lord Jesus, you understand the horrible reality of death. You willingly gave your life for us. You were beaten and murdered undeservedly, unjustly, 
at what would appear to be the worst possible moment in your life when your ministry had just begun, and you did this to show the unsearchable riches of your grace and of God's glory. And you say in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We pray, Lord Jesus, as we remember that you were forsaken and abandoned, having taken all of our sin on yourself, all for our sake. You take our sin and you give us your righteousness. You take our death and you give us everlasting life. And so as we remember that famous song, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord, we give you our souls, our lives, our everything. We pray that you would lead us in your ways. God, we pray that you would richly bless Marilyn Morgan's family today, this week, all month long, and into this year as the waves of grief come and go. Bless them and have compassion upon them, we pray. And God, we pray also that you would protect us this week from the freezing temperatures that are coming, from the winter storm that is projected to come. We pray that you would keep our pipes from freezing, that you would keep your people safe on the roads as they travel. We pray that you would bless the utility workers who will be working tirelessly here and across the country. Lord, help us, we pray, and have mercy on us in this weather. And God, as our students are going back to school, or have gone back, and those who are in college are going back often this week, um, we pray that you would give them eyes to see that their education is a gift from you, and that their purpose is ultimately your glory and their enjoyment of you through your creation and the exercising of the gifts and abilities that you've given them. We pray along with that, Lord, that you would help our teachers, that you would strengthen them spiritually and physically, that you would pour into them so that they can pour into their students. God, we give you all the glory this morning. We are so grateful for your love, for your salvation, for the good news preached to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. And now, Lord, we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you to stand for our next hymn together, which is hymn 381. Let's stand and sing, Brethren, we have met to worship him.
You may be seated. At this time, we'll take up our tithes and offerings, and we do this as an act of worship. So as God has blessed you and shown you his grace and mercy and righteousness, we respond in giving to him, to his church, and to his kingdom. So we'll do that as the music plays. Please pray with me. Lord, we give you our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We give you our tithes and offerings as you have given so much to us, we give to you. Would you give us faith to know and to believe that you are making use of these tithes and offerings in ways that we could never imagine for your glory and for the benefit of your people who are in need? 
We thank you for this time in which we are able to give, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me in the scriptures now to our New Testament reading, which is Romans 10, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. Romans 10, beginning in verse 14, hear the word of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, thank you now for giving us the opportunity to study your word. And we pray that you would fan it into a flame that would warm our hearts. And that you would send your Holy Spirit now for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about the subject of worship, and specifically talking about things we do during a normal worship service. A book I'm reading talked about John Wooden, and on the first practice of a new season every year it was tradition that he would spend time with uh, his players teaching them how to put on their socks now you imagine showing up for practice as a freshman with the, great John Wooden, the greatest basketball coach who ever lived and he's going to teach you how to put on your socks and so someone asked him why he did this and this was Wooden's answer he said the little things matter. All I need is one little wrinkle in one sock to put a blister on one foot, and it could ruin my whole season. I started teaching about shoes and socks early in my career, and I saw that it really did cut down on blisters during the season. That little detail gave us an edge. You know, sometimes you need to think about the most basic things in order to get an edge. Sometimes you need to think about things that you've done hundreds if not thousands of times and revisit those things in order to get an edge. And so today, as we begin talking about worship, we're specifically going to talk about preaching. And you've all listened to a lot of sermons. You've listened to a lot of sermons for me uh, in the past year. But it's good to think about what we're doing when we're actually listening to a sermon. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones... One of my preaching heroes, one of the greatest preachers of the previous century in the English-speaking world, said, to me, the work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most gracious calling, glorious calling, to which anyone can ever be called. 
And that was a man who was a prominent physician before he became a preacher. So Paul is telling us in our passage, preaching is absolutely central to God's plan in the world because it's through preaching that God calls his people to trust in Jesus Christ, which is the mission of God in this world, and which is the mission of the church in this world, to call sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. And what I want to focus on about preaching isn't so much preaching in itself, but actually listening. The existence of preaching demands listening. So this is kind of meta. This is a, you're listening to a sermon about listening to a sermon. And that will break my brain if I think about it much longer. But the existence of preaching demands listening. In verse 14 of our passage, Paul says, How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So it's not just preaching that's important. It's also hearing that's important. So let's talk about that. How do we listen to a sermon? Here's point one. I just want to say this. How you listen to a sermon matters in more ways than you can imagine, especially from the perspective of a preacher. So I need to make a qualification right up front. I love the way that y'all listen to sermons. This is not me coming up here saying, this church does not know how to listen to a sermon. Or this is not me standing up here saying, it's not, oh, he must have got criticized recently, and so he's going to talk about preaching. Or he's having problems with the way that we engage with a sermon. So he's, no, this is not that at all. So I promise this is not the Heath is frustrated sermon. This is not the someone aggravated the preacher sermon. I've been stewing on this for a while. This church has been overwhelmingly accepting of my preaching, and I thank God for that. So this is a... We really want Sundays to be special sermon. This is a when people talk, when people walk into First Presbyterian Church, we want them to know that something awesome is happening in this place. Something that God has ordained to change the world. You know, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says when the word of God is going forth prophetically in a church service, there's always a possibility when an unbeliever or an outsider walks into the service that that person will fall down on their face, worship God, and declare that God was really present in that service. That's what we, I pray that all the time. God, if an unbeliever or an outsider, a visitor comes into this place, I pray that by the end they will be worshiping you and saying, God was here. I may not have expected it, but God was here. That's what we should want. And that's the reason for this series on worship. So back to our passage, verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Your Holy Spirit given, Holy Spirit hearing of the gospel can produce faith. That's what's at stake today. Someone who doesn't have faith can walk out of this place with faith. Or someone who has weak faith can come out of this place with strength and faith. Or someone who thinks their faith is miraculously strong can come out with even stronger faith. But you have to hear. You have to hear. There's an old preacher story that, you know, a preacher walks up to the pulpit, opens up his Bible, and sees that someone in the congregation is already asleep. And so he gets really loud on his mic and says, at least give me a chance to put you to sleep. 
John, I, I was reading an obscure manuscript of a Jonathan Edwards sermon a number of years ago. You can find all these handwritten manuscripts of his on Yale's, he was the president of Yale for a time, and so they have, they've collected all these manuscripts that he wrote. And I found this little obscure reference in a sermon. I don't even remember what the sermon was. But he was not only going to chastise his congregation for sleeping during the sermon, he was going to chastise them because some of them were lying down on the pews while they slept during the sermon. And I'm not talking about children. I'm talking about adults. And I related to that. There is a church I preached for um, years ago, and a woman came up to me and she said, you know, don't mind, don't mind my husband. Uh, he and his brother, who sit on different pews, they, they actually have a race to see who can fall asleep first after the doxology. You know, that's a normal thing, but it's at least give, it a, give the sermon a chance to put you to sleep. And, and, and the fact that Jonathan Edwards struggled with that was actually really encouraging to me because he's one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, and he had to deal, <laughs> deal with it. So if an unbeliever or an outsider walks in and experiences collective nap time, He's not going to fall down on his face and say, God is here. That's why how you listen matters. How you listen matters because hearing produces faith and because preaching and hearing are connected. You know, if a tree falls down in the forest, they say, and there's no one there to hear it, does the tree make a sound? You know, if a preacher preaches and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? I don't go around preaching to walls. You know, what we're doing here is very important. So what I want you to understand in this point is simple. You have no idea how much my preaching relies on your listening. You know, the sociologist Emil Durkheim coined the phrase collective effervescence. And that's the idea that when, it's, it's patently obvious, like when you get a group of people together, it, crea it creates an atmosphere, an environment, a sort of spirit. And, you know, you've experienced this at football games. You've experienced this at, at concerts and performances. It's amazing. You know, one of the things I love about going to a sporting event with a big crowd is just seeing how a crowd can begin en masse to act as one being. That's collective effervescence. You know, when a crowd lets out a collective groan on a bad call or on a, a bad play or on a turnover or something like that, or how a crowd can just burst out into spontaneous cheer as one man almost, standing on their feet, screaming at the top of their lungs. When you experience that, it's transformative. It's amazing. You remember it. But we don't have the... But do you come into church with the idea that in mass, listening to a sermon, something powerful can actually be happening? That the congregation can be affected as one man? But that is exactly what happens in preaching. When you're listening... When you're engaged, it affects me. It powerfully affects me. There are Sundays when, you know, maybe it's cold outside. Maybe the weather is not good. Maybe attendance is a little down. And I come up into the pulpit and I realize, okay, we're down today. That means I got to, by the power of the Spirit, my job today is to pick these people up on my shoulders and carry them to where I think God wants them to go today. But there are also Sundays, and today might be one of them. It might not. I'm not going to tell you. 
when I walk up here and I'm dead, now I'm lethargic, uh, maybe it's been a rough week, maybe there's been a lot on the plate, and I'm coming up and I'm praying, God, I need these people to carry me today. Now, sometimes I have to pick them up on my back and carry them, but sometimes I need you to pick me up on your back and to carry me across the finish line. It's that listening interaction. That's what creates that. You know, there's a transaction that's taking place. And Matthew Henry, the commentator, on this passage, he said it's a glorious transaction. There's like this interaction between preacher and listener where we're, we're sharing one another's joy. We're sharing one another's love. We're, we're sharing the power of the Spirit with one another. And when I'm giving my best, I need you to give your best. And when I'm not giving you my best, I need you to give your best because that's when I need it most of all. And you need to ask me to give you my best too. If I'm mailing it in, you've got to tell me. Heath, we need you to step it up. That's the interaction between preacher and listening. So let me, before we close this point, let me make just a couple of really practical applications of how, because listening is important, some things you can do that might help you become a better listener that I've picked up for myself over the years as a listener. One thing is there are all sorts of ideas and data and the like out there now about how our attention spans because of the internet are getting shorter and shorter. Uh, now, I don't think human attention spans have ever been that long. Hence, in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards is complaining about his people uh, lying down in the pews. But one thing I found that helps me, I'm constantly trying to work simply on being present, being right here, right now. Not somewhere else, right here, right now. One helpful tool I learned for this recently was um, to actually engage intrusive thoughts, distracting thoughts and the like, and acknowledge that they're happening. So for instance, if I'm trying to think, if I'm in my office, I'm at home, and I'm trying to think deeply about something, and a noise, I hear a bird chirping or a police siren or something like that that's going to distract me, I say to myself, listening. You're distracted because you're listening to that. And I pull myself back to the present moment. Same thing if something visibly distracts me. I say, looking. And I draw myself back to the moment. And most helpfully, for me at least, you know, we talked about anxiety, especially on Wednesday nights a lot over the past year. And one, you know, one of the, the symptoms of, of anxiety usually are a tightening chest or a racing, spinning mind. When my mind starts spinning, that's my most common distraction. And, I'm, and I'm, I had to sit, as many of you sat in a funeral in this church yesterday, I had to sit in one yesterday afternoon after that funeral and listen. And uh, spinning mind, I start thinking. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to preach tomorrow. I got this coming next week. I've got that coming next week. And before I know it, it could be five minutes. I'm lost. And so I say to myself, planning. You're planning. And I draw myself back to the moment. The same thing for past memories. A past memory pops up that distracts you. You say, remembering. That's not now. That was then. The future is not now. The past is not now. I need to be here right now because especially in the context of a sermon on Sunday morning. God wants to deal with you right now. He's not dealing with the past you. He's not dealing with the future you. He's dealing with the present you. And he wants you to hear the word of Christ preached in this place today. 
So that's one thing, fighting distractions. Always pull yourself back to the present. Here's the second thing. One of the things, it's already been joked about this morning, that people have said to me since I've, I've been here, I am not, it is not the easiest to take notes while I'm preaching. One of our elders says that when I'm preaching, you have to listen fast because I talk fast. I am fully self-aware of that. And so I wanted to encourage you in that matter uh, that years ago I read, again, Jonathan Edwards. He said this about note-taking in sermons. The main thing obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind at the time and not by an effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. And though... And after remembrance of what was heard in the sermon is sometimes very profitable, yet for the most part, that remembrance is from an impression the words made on the mind at the time, and the memory profits as it renews and increases that impression. Let me unpack that. What he's saying is, the most important thing for you right now is not saying, I've got to remember that later. It's saying, I need to let that impact me right now. God is doing something right now. And Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on it, that quote by Edwards. He said this, I would add that I have often discouraged the taking of notes while I'm preaching. The first and primary object of preaching is not only to give information, it is, as Edwards says, to produce an impression. It is not primarily to impart information. And while you are writing your notes, you may be missing something of the impact of the Spirit. So that is not to say you can't take notes during a sermon at all. And Lloyd-Jones would go on to say in this little essay that I'm quoting from that if taking notes helps you to be present and in tune to what the Spirit is doing right now, then by all means. But if it's something, and if it, help, if it helps you to track and just stay engaged, then it's good. But don't feel bad if you can't do it. God may not want you to do it because he wants you to experience what's happening right now. You don't take notes at a football game. You experience it. You don't take notes at a concert, at a play. Not to say that this is entertainment or sport. It's not at all. But this is not a classroom either. I'm going to teach you things. Absolutely, that's part of my responsibility. But it's much more than that. And Presbyterians are prone to fall into the trap of thinking this is a classroom. And it's not a classroom. This is where... God calls us to worship, and we come here to engage him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how you listen matters. It affects you, it affects me, and it affects everyone around you. That's the first point. My next two points will be briefer. Here's the second. You need to adopt a posture where you want preaching to work. You want it to work. You want it to do what it's meant to do. And that seems self-evident, but let me give some explanation. So in our passage, verse 15, Paul says, How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Charles Hodge, commenting on that verse, says, How beautiful the feet means how delightful the approach. When a messenger is coming with good news, you want to hear 
that message. His approach is delightful. Anticipate the good news that's coming. Anticipate something beautiful. I was talking about this uh, with my friend who's also a minister, Jeremy Beck, and he, he really enjoys magic, which is not something I'm into. But I'm going to use his illustration about magic. He said, if you're watching a magic trick, the way to watch it is to want the trick to actually work. That's how you're going to get the most joy out of it, when you're actually expecting it to work. You should approach the trick as delightful, because when the trick works, that's when you get joy and wonder and amazement. So if you're jaded and don't believe in magic, there's no point in watching. You might as well go to sleep or do something else. If you're not paying close attention, when the trick works, you won't get the same amount of joy as someone who had been paying, paying close attention. Or if you're just trying to figure out the trick, you won't get joy because you're just being an analyst and a critic. This is the same goes for listening to sermons. If you're jaded and don't want to believe, there's no point. If you're not going to pay close attention, then the potential joy you could have is diminished because you didn't track, because you didn't follow. And you know, it's a pretty savage line that Spurgeon used, but I was reading a Charles Spurgeon sermon uh, talking about preaching, and he said, uh, he said, Christians who complain that they're not getting the fire and the warmth from the pulpit need to be careful that they're not, they're not carrying around ice cubes in their heart because they may just be transferring their coldness to the preacher or to the service. So you have to come with the posture of expecting, I want the trick to work. I want something glorious to happen in this service and in this sermon. And if you come with that expectation, don't be surprised. You won't be surprised when it may actually happen. That's the idea. Give the preacher a chance to put you to sleep. Give the service a chance to put you to sleep. And one of the reasons I'm a preacher is because from the earliest days after I became a Christian, I loved listening to sermons. You know, Tarantino became a movie director because he loved watching movies. And I'm not calling myself Tarantino by any means, but one of the reasons I became a preacher is because I love listening to sermons. Some of you would not believe the amount of sermons I listen to. And, uh, and I listen on anything from 1.7 to 2.7 speed, usually. So I can take in a lot of material. There's an old book called Consider the Oyster. Um, and I don't, that randomly just popped into my mind. It, it was just a long meditation on oysters. And in the, in the very first part of the book, the lady who's writing it talks about how much an oyster consumes gallons and gallons and gallons of water a day in order to do whatever it is that an oyster does. And for preachers, you almost have to consume gallons and gallons and gallons of Bible and sermons and material constantly in order to get up and have something to say that's not just the same thing you've said over and over again. And the thing is, whether it's a hero of mine like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Jonathan Edwards or Tim Keller or whether it's people I may listen to who I fundamentally disagree with theologically, I try to approach every sermon I listen to with the posture of I'm anticipating something delightful. I'm going to get something God wants me to get from this. Somehow, even if I disagree with a lot of what's said, I'm going to hear from Christ. 
I want to listen to a sermon believing there's going to be something beautiful there and I'm going to get good news. And I try to accept the posture. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, great book, Preaching and Preachers. He said, I can forgive a preacher a bad sermon. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God. If he gives me something for my soul. If he gives me the sense that though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious. If he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, and the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, I'm his debtor. And that's how I try to approach listening myself. Give it a chance. See if you see the love of Christ. See if you see the majesty of God. If you don't, then don't listen anymore. But at least give it a chance. Get yourself, your distractions, and your prejudices out of the way and hope that you might get a glimpse of the majesty of God and of the love of Christ. That's point two. So how you listen matters. Come anticipating something beautiful is going to happen. That's number two. Now, number three is listening is a lifestyle. And what I mean by that is that if you're not listening to Christ, if you're not reading the scriptures, if you're not looking for the glory of God in your six days a week life outside of this place, you're probably not going to hear him or see him on Sundays. And if you're not hearing him and seeing him on Sundays, you're probably not going to see him the other six days of the week either. Jesus says, to he who has, more will be given. And to he who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And I found it's, the more I get from Christ, the more it seems he just keeps giving and giving and giving. And that's the posture of church, of listening. I want what I have to increase I want this to be a way of life for me. Paul says in our text, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we want to keep hearing and hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Interestingly, I did, I, it was too late in the week that I saw this to change the bulletin for the text. But in the very next verse after verse 17 where we ended our reading, Paul says, verse 18, I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words... To the end of the world. Paul in the context. Is talking about the Jewish people. Not believing the gospel. And subsequently the spread of the gospel. To the Gentiles. And throughout the nations. And he's referencing Psalm 19. Which talks about the heavens. Declaring, declaring the glory of God. And the sky above. Deploying his handiwork. And so he's essentially saying. The gospel, even if the Jewish people do not listen, the gospel is going to cover the world like the stars cover the heavens. And by implication, I'm saying to you, the gospel should cover your lives like the stars cover the heavens. Your life should be just covered, engulfed in the gospel. Rick Rubin, whose book I've been referencing recently, says communication moves in two directions. Speaking and listening. When the listener is totally present, the speaker often communicates differently. Sometimes we block the flow of information being offered and compromise true listening. 
Listening is suspending disbelief. We are openly receiving. The only goal is to fully and clearly understand what is being transmitted, remaining totally present with what's being expressed. Anything less is not only a disservice to the speaker, but also to yourself. In other words, your life should be a listening life. If your eyes aren't open to the glory of Christ and your ears aren't open to the glory of Christ, you're doing a disservice not only to yourself, but to the God who desires to speak to you. Last thing as we conclude. Your life should be a listening life. Psalm 40, verse 6. David says to God, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. An open ear to God is a gift from God. And, but David's terminology there is one of the strangest verses in the Bible because in Hebrew he doesn't say an open ear. He literally says, you have given me a, this may be grammatically incorrect, digged out ear. That's how Palmer Robertson translates it, a digged out ear. It's the idea that like a man digs a ditch, that's what God's got to do to sinners' ears. He's got to dig them out. He's got to, they're, they're, they don't want to listen, and so he's got to pierce through our trying to block hearing communication from him so that he can penetrate through the ear to the heart. And what's even more strange about that phrase, digged out ears, is that when the book of Hebrews quotes that phrase in Hebrews 10.5, it, it says, Hebrews 10.5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is quoting from that psalm, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You hear the difference? Not an ear you have opened or digged, but a body you've prepared. That text in Hebrews is making the point. In order for God to dig out our ears so that we could hear, Christ had to be buried for us. The purpose of the death of Christ, there are many purposes, but part of it is so that the gospel would penetrate our hearts, that we might be ready and willing at all times to hear what God would say to us. The gospel is not just meant, Jesus didn't just die to save our souls. He died to change our ears. And so we're listeners. Christians are listeners. And we've had all these highfalutin references to sociologists and preachers and the like. We'll end with uh, Smokey and the Bandit. How's that sound? When uh, Jerry Reed, we'd get on that CB, call for Bandit, what would he say? Bandit, you got your ears on. Got your ears on? Let's end with that. First prayers, you got your ears on? Come next week with your ears on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us today. Thank you for allowing us this time to gather around Paul's letter to the Romans and be encouraged by him to hear your word being preached. Lord, would you make us a church? And we already are. But would you, to he who has, more will be given. So would you make us a church more and more that comes on Sundays anticipating great things, saying how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Would we anticipate the approach of your word coming to us week in and week out? 
And would you allow us to leave this place today lost in wonder, love, and praise? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals now to hymn number 660. And we'll stand together and sing, O God, beyond all praising. 660. now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.